Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Macrovisor podcast. I'm joined by my wonderful co-host Aisha, and we're going to talk about a couple of different areas around the world today, Japan, China, Europe, and of course the United States. But before we do, how's it going today, Aisha? Great. We have a busy week ahead of us. Uh, we've got inflation data coming out of uh, the U.S. and Europe. And I guess with both the central banks becoming data dependent, so to speak, um, we have to keep our eye on everything that's going on. Absolutely right. And there are a lot of moving pieces in this picture, which is one of the things that we try to focus on here at Macrovisor is putting those pieces together, taking that big picture view and distilling it into more actionable and meaningful information. So first, we'll start off with Japan. This is a country where there's been probably one of the greatest monetary policy experiments in human history, if not the most outlandish, the most uh, noteworthy that's ever happened. Right now, the central bank is trying to ease off the gas as they pull back a little bit on their yield curve control program, allowing yields to rise as high as 1% on their 10-year JGB. And while this is all going on, there's been a bit of what you might call an economic miracle. The only reason we might say this is this is a country that for decades has struggled to achieve growth and it seems like now maybe they are. So are you trying to say that Japan is easing the easing? I Yes, exactly right. I'm trying to say that Japan is easing the easing. But it's very interesting, though. So we heard from Governor Ueda um, during Jackson Hole. He wasn't part of you know the main speeches, but he did have a panel discussion on Saturday. And something that he said was very interesting. He said that, you know, inflation still hasn't taken hold and he still sees um, inflation below the target or below the Bank of Japan's target. Now, during the last meeting, they did update their uh, economic projections to increase their inflation target a little bit. That's when they uh, widened the ban on the yield curve control as well. Um, but I think going back to what we have maintained for the last couple of months is that right now with the new governor in place, it's more of a slow watch and see policy versus taking drastic action. And we think that this might continue into the end of the year as well. And that makes sense, right? This is easy does it. Ueda is an academic. As you've pointed out in the past, he's much more likely to take this one step at a time rather than be aggressive. And this is a country where they're very, very laden with debt. Debt to GDP in Japan is something like 260%. The Bank of Japan is the biggest buyer of that debt, holding about 55% of all that's outstanding, which is interesting because then the government of Japan also owns 55% of the Bank of Japan. So it's sort of like an Ouroboros. If you think about a snake eating its own tail, that's sort of what the monetary plumbing in Japan looks like right now. But more seriously, it does seem like they've actually kickstarted what might be a new bull market there as well. Equity performance in Japan has been very, very impressive. And it's been broad. It's been a broad-based rally in the Nikkei. Absolutely. And in fact, um, the stock market is still cheaper um, by many standards, when you compare it to 
you know, other regions of the world like the U.S. or even the even Europe, for example. So Europe is now at a PE of about 15, I would like to say. And that's pretty expensive in the context of Europe in general. In the U.S., you keep reminding us that we're at 2021, which is an exceptionally high uh, level. Whereas in Japan, we're... Many of the bigger companies are still trading below book value, which is which makes it very, very lucrative to go in and invest in some of these companies in Japan individually or invest in the market in general as well. But coming back to yield, con- yield curve control a little bit, so YCC, and when they broadened the uh, band, we did see them step in and buy bonds right after that right and so uh, my thinking is something like this the japan is a very you know they're trying to again balance the situation and sort of step in to buy the bonds so that the yield doesn't surge drastically because a surge in the yields would mean you know bond prices tanking uh, what do you make of this i agree i think that japan is a very interesting puzzle piece in the global monetary and economic picture. It has this role that it's played for really several decades now on and off as a source of excess liquidity that finds its way into other markets through vehicles like carry trades. And so if the Japanese central bank does let the JGB yield rise more meaningfully and the yen actually begins to stabilize with this and move higher, that could put some pressure on some of these carry trades. And that in turn could move rates higher in the U.S. a bit and in some of these other areas where Japanese investors have larger exposure, it could also push down equity prices a bit. And the reason that it's interesting to look at this is if you plot the price of the Japanese yen versus the dollar versus the price of the 10-year note, you can see there's a very strong positive correlation between the two. And that's one of the reasons that based on our studies of this, based on our models, that if the yen moves higher, rates tend to move higher here. So that's one thing I'd be looking out for in the not on impacts of that. Absolutely. And I think I see it a little bit like this as well, in the sense that um, right now, we know that yields will float higher in Japan, right? So, And we know that uh, bonds, so bond prices, will therefore come down. And this I'm talking about Japan. So at the moment, we probably may not see a lot of external money flowing in, knowing full well that if they buy today, their the bond price will be lower tomorrow, right? So I think we're waiting for a time to see when these yields actually stabilize around the 1% mark. And once they do stabilize around that mark, I do think we'll see a lot of funds flowing in, just as you've said. So if that's probably the eventuality. And when that happens, I, I do think that we will see that flow come in from the U.S., which means bond prices in the U.S. will fall and yields will rise, right? Um, And so I think people are seeing Japan as a very interesting case study. You know, inflation has taken off after, what, three, four decades now. But the repercussions that Japan has in the movement in the yields and the amount of money that's flowing through those markets and that may flow to those markets actually has a very significant impact on the U.S., on Europe, on U.K. And um, in fact, most of the world. Uh, 
um, and something that we are definitely keeping an eye on. And let's, for the audience out there, for people that are listening that don't understand exactly how the carry trade works, let's just break down the mechanics real quick. So if you're originating your trade by borrowing in yen, and you're borrowing ostensibly at a negative interest rate, and then you're taking those funds and you're bringing them into a market like the US where you're able to put them into, say, bills where you can earn in excess of 5%. The spread that you're earning on that trade is what you get to keep in your pocket. But the dynamics of that trade don't work so well if the currency stops moving lower and starts to move higher. And one of the things that can provoke that is exactly what Aisha was talking about. Affirming up in the longer end of rates in Japan could give the yen a pretty strong bid, particularly as it attracts foreign investment through the market and more attractive debt markets. There's also dynamics in currency hedging that could make it more favorable for investors to start to look more at Japanese debt, even more than they are right now. But you know what I really loved about what you just talked about right there? Let's go back several months to when our good friend, I'm saying this humorously, Warren Buffett issued tons of debt in Japan. Was that not really, really good timing and just incredibly smart in so many different ways? The yen's moved lower since then. Rates have moved higher since then. To him, the debt's cheaper since then. I mean, it's Warren Buffett. You wouldn't expect anything else, would you? If he's got his eyes on a country, there has to be a significant amount of you know, uh, profitability there for him to go in. Because he is firmly fixed on the U.S., you and I know this, and for him to sort of come out of the U.S. and venture into other regions, it would really have to have good reasons. Continuously earning his name, the moniker, the Oracle of Omaha. Because truly seeing this in advance is, a lot of people don't credit him with his macro savvy. But this was a very macro savvy move, too. And I think that's another thing that he deserves kudos with, because, yes, he's a legendary value investor, but he's also very macro savvy. Let's put it this way. I think anyone who invests and anyone who looks at the market or companies long enough realize that at the end of the day, the macro obviously affects companies because the macro is made up of people of you know the mechanics of the economy and so if you're ignoring this you're ignoring a lot of intelligence right so th this is a very very big part of investing and of becoming a good investor it's we're not throwing spaghetti at the wall and trying to see what sticks that's not the kind of investor you want to be. And that's exactly why we do what we do at Macrovisor, just to give us a quick plug, because our whole goal is to take this complexity and break it down, distill it into more actionable insights that you might be able to make better informed decisions about swing trades or investments with that information. And, you know, if you sign up at our website right now, you can actually get 30% off, not in your first month. What of your first year, whether you sign up for our monthly or yearly plan, but time is limited on that offer. So let's move things right along to another country in the Pacific, and that is China, Japan's neighbor. This is a totally different story. It couldn't be more different than Japan. Instead of China seeing this recovery, their economy seems to be continuing to languish. We see a record high youth unemployment rate, something you talked about recently in one of your articles, and they just stopped tracking the 
data as if that's going to help to ameliorate the problem. Then we have a, just a growing amount of problems in the real estate market. Construction is languishing. Exports are falling. China's now exporting deflation with falling export prices, and they can't seem to kickstart the Chinese consumer. So these three potential pillars of the recovery, they're not firing off. And now, well, we're starting to see some things from the government, aren't we? Indeed we are. And I think it goes more to, you know, all the savings that, you know, people are putting away. So we thought that we would have the great China reopening and people would consume and there was a lot of pent up savings and all of that would be used. Instead, what we're seeing is people are saving even more now and, you know, they're not spending. And I think it's, uh, you know, a little bit of a loss of faith, right? So um, the general public, they still remain scared they see what's going on over there. They see what's going on with the property market. And I think there is some degree of caution that they're exercising here. And they want to wait until things are a little bit more stable. We see a little bit more, let's say, stimulus. I wouldn't say really stimulus, but they want to see measures coming out from the government. And what the government has been doing is sort of drip feeding, uh, you know, stimulus measures just to the extent to appease the public or to sort of create a perception that they are doing something, but they're not really doing a lot that is tangible. So a couple of weeks ago, they cut the loan prime rate, but they only cut the one-year loan prime rate, which is the shorter-term rate, and that too by 10 basis points, which is 0.1%. That's not a lot. And that's not a lot in a time when they want to jumpstart, you know, borrowing and they want to jumpstart activity in the country. We're seeing industrial production fall. We're seeing, you know, services fall. We're seeing, we're seeing almost every data point come out negative out of China. And at a time like this, you want the government to take big steps. What most of the banks are calling bazooka-like stimulus programs um, but none of that is coming through. What the government is doing is just enough to create the perception that something is being done. That's really what it feels like. I, I think you put it perfectly. Just enough to make it feel like something's being done in lieu of doing something. And so now we have new news over the last couple of days that the government is going to start telling banks you need to drop rates on first-time homebuyer mortgages and drop rates on deposits. Another effort to try to free up some cash, get the consumer invigorated, but it seems like too little. It seems like too late. That loss of faith is something you pointed out, a very important point, because what is consumption? It's really driven by psychology, and that psychology is driven by confidence. And any objective measure is telling us that Chinese consumers are simply not confident. If we're voting with our money, they're telling the world that eh, they're not ready yet. So what do you think it's going to take? Do you think this government is actually going to do enough or are they really content to let their economy languish? And, and I want to frame this question up with just one other part here. This seems to basically be an autocracy under Xi who unilaterally decides what is and isn't going to happen. And he doesn't seem, at least maybe I'm missing something, but he doesn't seem to care much about the business sector or the economy as a whole. So I don't know what what's in his mind, obviously, but 
I want to point out something though. You just said that they asked banks to cut rates for first-time home buyers, right? So this is very interesting um, because uh, last month when they had the Politburo meeting, they came out, so they, they used to have this slogan which said, homes are for living, not for speculation. So basically they wanted people to buy one home to live in, but they didn't want to, people to go ahead and buy homes to flip, right? Um, during this last Politburo meeting in July, they got rid of this slogan. So basically, they didn't reinforce this idea. So basically, they want people to buy more homes now, whether it's for living or speculation or for whatever. So they want to jumpstart the property market by asking people to buy houses, not necessarily homes. However, the measure that they are talking about goes to only first-time home buyers, right? So you're going back to the same policy over and over again. So you see what I'm trying to say? You are supporting first-time home buyers, but you're not supporting people who are going to buy houses for speculation. So again, you're not really bringing in a measure that will jumpstart the property market. And this is exactly what is going on on all levels. So what it would take is something more tangible. This example tells you exactly what they're doing, right? They are putting in measures, but they're not putting in the measures where it's needed and to the extent that it's needed. Now, there is some speculation that uh, China has set their growth target, their GDP growth target at 5%. And there is some speculation and discussion that as long as this growth target is not threatened, and they or the government sees that China is able to reach this 5% growth target, they are not going to put in any tangible measures. Where I see things will start to change is when we come to the end of the year and if we actually fulfill the targets that you know the big banks have set now. So I'm sure you've heard that all the big banks have cut their targets to sub 5%, most of the big banks. Some are still saying that it would be above 5%, but JP Morgan, Citi, few other banks have cut the target to sub 5%. In fact, Q3 um, GDP growth is expected at 4.4% now which for China is half of what they were growing at over the last 40 years, right? So now when we come to the end of the year and if that 5% target is not hit and there is a chance that it will not be hit, um, there is a chance that the big banks are right and we do see sub 5% growth in China. That's when I think the government will actually step in and start to put in measures um, to achieve the kind of growth that they need to achieve. So at the end of the day, my view is that we're not gonna see a lot of changes until we actually cross the end of the year. And China probably has to be cognizant of the inelasticity of supply. They don't wanna create an inflationary spiral by bringing their entire economy online at such a level that it, you know, 
creates more imbalance than necessarily is needed because that could be even worse than what they're doing at present. So maybe there are some other external motivations to what's going on. I appreciate you coloring it with all of that. I think that's very good information to think about. And then let's move over to another part of the world that is struggling, and that is Europe. We're seeing a number of different indicators rolling over. The PM, the composite PMIs for UK, the Eurozone, and Germany are all negative. Many of the countries showing the same in the flash data we got recently. And we're seeming like we're teetering on the brink of a recession. This is an area where there's energy uncertainty, growth uncertainty, rate uncertainty, capital scarcity, imbalances in the labor market. It seems like quite a struggle. Yeah, you just um, counted off a whole number of issues with Europe. And you're absolutely right. It, they do have a whole number of issues. Now, with Europe, I, I think, you know, they are far more rate sensitive than the U.S. and many parts of the world. They have far more bank lending versus, you know, non-bank lending as you have in the U.S. And so, Europe is struggling with a little bit of that, which is good for the banks with the rates going up. They're actually making a lot of money. Their results came out really well. But then when you look at the other side, you look at manufacturing and now you look at services as well. All of this is starting to falter, right? And there is contraction in that economy. We're seeing growth rates. GDP growth rate came out at 0.3%, I think, for the Eurozone, flat 0% for Germany. Um we are going to see uh, inflation numbers this week. So on Thursday, uh, we have the Eurozone inflation numbers. And prior to that, on Wednesday, we get France and Germany, which are the two big economies over there. Now, given all this negative data, I think everybody's thinking that maybe this is a good time. This is a good time for us to pause, uh, for the ECB to pause hiking. But I think that would be a big mistake. I think the ECB does need to hike not just one more time, but pro probably two more times <clears throat> because they are far lower than the U.S., but their inflation still remains higher or inflation still remains sticky. So despite their sensitivity to the increase in interest rates, um, they are not seeing the effects just yet. So they are seeing effects for sure, but I think there's still more to go when it comes to inflation here. What do you think? I think so too. I think that Europe is structurally disadvantaged even more than the United States when it comes to inflation because of their dependency on energy externally, because of their dependency on a lot of agriculture externally, and because of the labor scarcity that they're dealing with. They have that embedded uh, vulnerability. And they've also just become sort of externally dependent on China for so much. And I think that's another issue that's a, a bit of a problem, particularly as these trade tensions and geopolitical issues escalate. So these are all areas of concern that we continue to monitor closely. So yes, what we're seeing is as well revenues coming down. With inflation coming down, we're seeing the pricing, weaker pricing, and that's pulling revenues down as well. Plus, it goes back to what you just said about China. So they are, they do have a huge amount of demand and uh, um, coming out of China, and that's dropping. So it's not just, it, so it's a huge Chinese demand dropping. You also have global demand, you know, easing a little bit. So everything combined, I think 
you know, the top line is not doing well. The bottom line is not doing well. Costs are going up again because, as you rightly pointed out, agriculture, energy. So the stock market, earnings, stocks are not doing very well over there. And I, I think we are likely going to see a situation where this will eventually uh, play out in stock prices. You shared a chart from FactSet the other day on Twitter about the Euro stocks 50 and the decline in earnings that they've seen. I, I, if memory serves, I want to say it was a pretty sizable decline that they've seen year over year. And it, it seems like that earnings recession that they're seeing across the pond from where I'm sitting is even worse than what we're seeing in the U.S. Yes, so the Eurostock 600, I think we've got, what, 85% of the companies that have reported. And for quarter two, we're seeing a year-on-year decline in EPS of 16%. On the Eurostox 50, which is only 50 stocks, we are seeing an earnings decline of about 9%. Now, if you compare that to the U.S., where on the S&P, the earnings decline for the quarter is... 4% year on year. So a big difference between Europe and the US right now, where we're seeing numbers come down drastically. So it seems to me, by any objective measure, the situation in Europe is worse than that of the US. While valuations may appear to be cheaper, what's happening is at the, at the, at the economic level, at the earnings level, the macro and fundamental picture is decidedly worse, and it seems like there's more gravity to pull it lower. Do you think that a bear market in European stocks is on the horizon, that this relief that we've seen that's brought many of these markets to all-time highs may be, to borrow a tired term, transitory? So look, I think what happened in Europe is they saw a bear market last year, right? As did the US as well. And after that, we're seeing somewhat of a recovery from there. For now, I think stocks will chop around a little bit within a range. But ultimately, I do think that these uh, prices are going lower because you can't have a situation where you have a recession, where you have PMI numbers falling, you have uh, costs going up and revenues coming down. All of this will eventually have to translate into the prices of stocks. Agreed 100%. I think that's a very important reflection because if you think about it, where Europe is right now, this is a key inflection point for investors looking ahead, which investors and markets often try to do. There's not a lot to look for that is very promising. The ECB has made it pretty vague as to whether they're going to hike again. So maybe that's the most so-called bullish thing on the horizon is the uncertainty of future hikes rather than some degree of certainty from Lagarde. But really zooming out in the bigger picture, Europe seems like an area to be concerned about, to raise cash in that can be deployed elsewhere, which gives us an opportunity to talk about elsewhere. Let's look at the United States and particularly what's going on in the labor market. We got some very interesting data from JOLTS today. I think that that was a little bit unexpected, the amount of decline we saw. Remember, last month's reading was 9.17 million. The forecast for this month was 9.49 million openings. What we got was 8.83 million. That's the first eight handle we've seen on JOLTS. I want to say 
since really the job market became tight to begin with. We're really seeing a change. And this is in the context of several other things happening in the background too. Yeah, it's very interesting. So I think the Joe's number is finally going towards where it should be. Um, we had discussed this a while back, but the JOLS needs to be somewhere between 7 and 8 million. Pre-pandemic, we had a JOLS number of just over 7 million. Um, and I think until that number sort of, so we go back to that number between 7 and 8 million, we still have too many job openings versus, you know, uh, employed. And that sort of keeps the labor market extremely tight. So we're seeing the unemployment rate not moving at all. Right. But this is something that will eventually um, sort of seep into the, the labor market and it will um, make sure that the labor market becomes softer with time. It's very interesting that it's taken this long for this to break. Um, it, it's been tighter, much longer than anyone expected. But I think here's the situation. When we look at you know, unemployment versus tightening cycles versus recessions, what we see is the labor market is usually the last to break. So it's not uh, something that we haven't seen before. We've seen this in past instances of tightening as well. And we're pretty much following the same playbook over here. The only difference is it's been tighter for much longer than anyone expected. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point is that those lagged and variable impacts of monetary policy have taken so much longer to have a effect that we can consider to be more tangible on the economy. We had that little slowdown last year over the summer, but it really didn't last. The economy picked up. There was that big positive fiscal impulse that helped to scoop things higher. Then there was, of course, the cessation of debt issuance this year in the context of the Bank of Japan and the People's Bank of China, also pushing stimulus into the markets that seeped into ours. All of that helped to buoy things along, both in the economy and in financial markets, but now we're starting to see another key sign. This is something you and I have talked a lot about, both in our writing and the podcast, and that is the services industry is really showing signs of slowing. That's been one of the key drivers of this job growth. It really seems at this point like it's no longer going to be the same. And I think that's an important part. What do you make of what you see in the services industry in this flash data we're seeing both here and abroad? Because it, it seems to suggest that, doesn't it? A slowing that has ripple effects. So again, I think the services industry has remained stronger in the US for much longer and much stronger um, than Europe, for example. So we're already seeing contraction in Europe and it goes back to the same thing. <clears throat> Europe is far more sensitive to interest rates uh, than the US is. So. The other thing is as well, I think we've got a lot of pent up service demand, right? And the Europe, uh, sorry, the US having all the stimulus that, you know, people got, um, it's giving rise to spending in services. So we've seen goods spending come down, but we've seen this money sort of being redirected towards services, which has kept the services industry going and stronger and actually, 
you know, grown uh, the numbers over there. But we are seeing gradual cracks in the numbers when it comes to the PMIs. Um, we are as well seeing that in the jobs data. So last month, the jobs data showed a slight uh, change in composition where we saw fewer healthcare workers, which was one area where there was a huge gap. Um, so some of that is slowing. So some of the services industries are already, let's say, got all the people that they needed to get. And part of that is slowing now. And we're seeing that we're coming off peak travel season. You know, really Labor Day weekend is going to be the tail end of a lot of that activity. That's likely to pull back some of the drivers of the really aggressive growth we saw in travel and leisure. Obviously, COVID disrupted it. So there was a little bit of a deficit there. Now, maybe there's a bit of a surplus in employment. They may scale back as we get out of this peak seasonality. But also, we see something else that coincides with that peak travel in, in, in terms of it being so extraordinary, but also probably more of a one-off, and that is that excess savings is really being drawn down right? So people are spending that same stimulus money that you just mentioned on these services, and they're drawing it down back to levels that are getting us to levels looking more like pre-COVID. And then finally, with the labor market in mind, this was interesting. I think JP Morgan came out with this note talking about how when the um, Bureau of Labor Statistics looks at the uh, last non-farm payroll prints up to March, that there's likely to be a 500,000 job downward revision in that data, which suggests that, yeah, this wasn't quite as strong as even we thought to begin with. And this is taking into context that every month of 2023, NFP has been revised lower subsequent to its initial release. So there are some signs underneath the surface that even though it was tight, maybe it wasn't quite as tight as it seemed. And the biggest one, of course, and this is a conversation you and I have had a lot, is the labor force participation rate. Pretty much the biggest exodus from the workforce was this 55 and over. All of these folks, as many of them as possibly could, retired or got out of the workforce as COVID kicked up, and most of them have not come back. And that's left a lot of structural inelasticity. I think one last thing to speak about when it comes to the labor market, or at least the labor numbers for uh, coming out on Friday, is the effect of bankruptcies. Um, so there's something that, you know, I, I've been mulling over and I think there's a lot of reports coming out over this. So one of the biggest bankruptcies that we had in the last couple of weeks was that of the trucking company Yellow. And you know that they uh, employ about 30,000 people over there. So that is one. And then you had uh, Bed Bath & Beyond as well. Some of that will also come off because they, they, they went through restructuring and then bankruptcy. So we're going to have a whole host of people who are coming onto the market because of bankrupt bankruptcies. But as we see the Joel's data, so job openings are coming down. Bankruptcies are causing people or pushing people out of their jobs. So we are going to see these numbers increase. Now for yellow, this I don't know if these 30,000 workers will show up in this report. So in August's report releasing on Friday or whether it will show up in next month's report, but we are definitely adding another 30,000 people. Um, because don't forget the other companies, the other trucking companies right now, I mean, one of the reasons Yellow did go out of, you know, uh, did 
closed down was because there is a lack of demand, right? So uh, I, I doubt that there would be many other trucking companies hiring these people and, and the transition is just too soon. So we are seeing further pressure in other ways that will cause unemployment to arise. And um, whether we like to acknowledge it or not, because we're seeing the stock market just march up higher, companies are slowing down. And eventually, this will lead to uh, a softer labor market. Yeah, it seems like some of the pieces that we've been talking about may be on the horizon for leading indicators that tell us there's a real economic slowdown coming. We're looking for meaningful rises in weekly unemployment claims of 300K in excess. We're looking for unemployment to move meaningfully above 4% and services to go into a multi-month contraction. And those would all start to tell us, you know what? Sad as it is to say, but a recessionary environment is becoming more likely. I know a lot of people have completely written it off, said it's a soft landing, we're fine, or even a no landing. But our view at Macrovisor remains that the risk of a hard landing is quite elevated and that the data remains fluid, but it's starting to suggest that that softening is really happening and not just into a graceful descent. So we want to thank everyone for tuning in. This has been a lot of fun. If you enjoyed listening to us on a major podcast service like Apple, Amazon, Google, or Spotify, can, uh, consider subscribing and leaving us a review. If you'd like to hear us discuss anything on the podcast, if you have questions, we'd love to hear from the listeners out there. Give us an email, hello at macrovisor.com with your questions that we can try to answer on air. And check out our website right now at macrovisor.com where we have a 30% off your first year special going on until next week. And as we close out, Aisha, do you have any thoughts you'd like to share? No, interesting data to watch for the week. Let's stay on our toes. Volume is low as we go into a long Labor Day weekend. So let's just be careful. All right, everyone. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in.